0: Several weeks ago, we announced that we were working through and have been working through the process of uh, eldership uh, with uh, a few of the men in the congregation, and and one of those men uh, we said was going to be presented today uh, for the office of elder. We are going to consecrate him and install him. His name is Jack DeBartolo, and we're going to do that right now, so I'd I'd invite Jack up. He's got to be here somewhere. Oh, there he is. Okay, with Tyler. Uh, Coming up with Jack is Tyler Johnson. If you don't know Tyler Johnson, Tyler is the lead pastor over all of Redemption. Redemption Church is one church with six congregations, and he is our leader over all of the um, uh, congregations. But he is also an elder locally here in the Arcadia congregation, so he's going to be involved in this. We also need our other two elders, Sean Johnson. Everybody knows Sean, he leads us in worship, he is one of the elders as well, and Sean Mortensen, if you don't know Sean Mortensen, he's also an elder here. Sean is also the Director of Media and Communications for uh, Redemption Church at large, but he offices here in Arcadia and is an elder here and we are privileged to have uh, these men here and now uh, for the installment of Jack and the consecration of Jack. And Jack, it is a privilege to be able to do this with you today, we are very excited about this. So let me take you through some things and then Tyler's going to lead us in a, in a prayer for you and then we'll have a benediction, okay? So you know what's going on. Friends, we are here in the presence of God to consecrate Jack who has been chosen for service in this congregation. We are reminded today that everything we do in the life of the church is important. and Every member of the body of Jesus Christ has been gifted for ministry. As Jack gives himself to this specific task of being an elder... Let us give ourselves to his support and encouragement, seeking with him the consecration God gives that we together may fulfill the calling he has given all of us and so bring glory to his name. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said this, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jack, I'm going to address you now. With prayer for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we have chosen you to serve as an elder here at Redemption Arcadia. It is both a great honor and a high responsibility to serve in the church of Jesus Christ. I charge you, therefore, to be faithful in your ministry and devoted in fulfilling your tasks and responsibilities that God may be glorified, that the work of His church may prosper, and that young and old may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, do you promise with God's help faithfully to perform the duties of the ministry to which you have been called? If this is your promise, will you answer, I do? I do. Okay. Tyler, I'm going to ask you to Go ahead and pray now for Jack, and then I'll wrap it up afterwards.
1: All right. Um, Jack is going to be a leader within this congregation, so I'm going to ask all of you to stand during this prayer. Um, And if you want to, you can reach out your hands as we lay our hands on Jack. You don't have to, uh, but this is a significant moment in the life of this church as we're calling a new leader uh, to lead us to be the people that God aspires us to be. So, Jack, if you come in the middle? We're going to lay our hands upon you. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray for the empowering of the Holy Spirit to fall and to fill Jack the Bartler. God, we as Redemption Arcadia pray uh, that in the empowering of this Holy Spirit, you would allow his gifts to be in full operation, that you would grant him the gift of leadership to lead in the ways that you have called him to lead, and primarily through service and love. Um, God, we pray that he would lead in such a way that we could follow him as he follows Christ. Uh, God, we thank you that you are the one who sovereignly appoints leaders in your church. And we collectively come together this morning to say, God, we will follow uh, him as long as he is obediently following you. We pray for his family. God, that you would strengthen them, that you would enable him to be the father that you have called him to be. We pray for Tricia, she comes alongside of him in this ministry and for the three kids, that you would be blessing them. God hold us to the fact of praying for our leaders god we are grateful and thankful for jack yes from us at redemption academy we thank you for all the guys on the stage that are leading this congregation we love you we thank you thank you for your faithfulness grace and love towards us as displayed um, in appointing jack the in christ's name we pray amen
0: amen jack with the full and prayerful support and encouragement of this entire congregation we now declare that you are installed in the office as elder. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, not just today, but forever and ever. Thanks, Jack. (laughs) If you would please remain standing for the reading of the word, Eugene will come up and give us our passage for today.
2: Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of also who are This is the word of the Lord. be
0: Thanks, Eugene. Well, good morning again. You know, it's a, I guess you could say it's an age-old question that human beings have been wrestling with for literally thousands and thousands of years. In fact, uh, I read an author this week who even said that it's something we've been wrestling with, he noted, uh, since history has been recorded, since the very earliest writings that we have, we have wrestled with what does it mean to be virtuous and what does it mean to have characteristics and qualities of virtue and what are those characteristics. And most importantly, How do we get those characteristics of virtue? How do we become people of patience, of perseverance, of steadfastness, of integrity? People who are honest and hardworking. People who are selfless, who are focused, who are committed. People who have compassion and mercy and love well. Uh, All of those things would be considered virtues. How do we get those? How do we attain those? How How do we live in a community where people recognize that we have those? Well, be thinking about that as we dive into Romans again. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to Romans chapter 1. If you have your phones... Do whatever it is you need to do to get to Romans chapter 1 in your phone. We have Bibles in the chairs in front of you as well. Go to Romans chapter 1. Uh, We're going to be looking at the second paragraph of this letter this morning. Uh, Last week, Paul introduced himself, if you were here, and you remember that uh, he did something kind of interesting, which was out of the decorum for the normal first century uh, rhetoric and literature of that day when it came to letter writing. Uh, usually what you do is you introduce yourself as the author of the letter and you immediately talk about who you're writing to. But Paul didn't do that. He introduced himself and then he was so overwhelmed by his desire to start his message of the letter, to start talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ that he just went right into that for five more verses. And, And he was identifying himself with the gospel. He was so anxious to preach and to proclaim and to teach the gospel. So some of you may be, well, what's the gospel? What does that mean? Well, the the word literally means good news. And the reason we need good news is because there's bad news. Because of sin, we've been separated from God. Later on in Romans, Paul will uh, summarize an argument that he takes us through for a couple of chapters by saying, for all have sinned. Every one of us has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, but because of the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, we can be delivered from that state, from that fallen nature, and we can live with God forever, and that starts now, that starts today. It doesn't start in some ethereal existential time in the future although that's a part of it, but it starts right now. Paul says later on in Romans, for while we were yet sinners, while we were at odds with God, while we were rebelling with God, Jesus died so that we could have life everlasting. And, And once we have life with, in, and through Jesus Christ, we actually have access to the ability and the power and the strength to live a life that God calls us to, to live a life of godly purpose. We have access to, be, uh, to, uh, to the ability to be all that God intended us for us to be because we have the resurrected Christ in us. And Paul simply cannot wait to tell people this message. He has good news and he just dove right into it Uh, last week. And you and I are the same way. You and I are exactly the same way when we think we have got good news for somebody. Right? We walk out of a great movie that we just... I, I remember when Les Mis came out. I am telling you, I was inundated with social media and phone calls and and just normal, old-fashioned talking face-to-face with people, telling me about the wonderful movie Les Mis. People couldn't wait to tell me about how good it is. How about you go to a restaurant? A lot of of really average restaurants out there these days, but you go to a good one and you really have something good, what do you do? Well, you take a picture of your food and you tweet it and you text it to everybody. You have good news about this food. You hit the jackpot at a casino, man, you're telling everybody except the pastor, but you're telling everybody else, and eventually I will find out about it, I guarantee you. Whenever something wonderful happens to my daughters, I'm telling you, I can't wait because I think that's good news. Whenever something wonderful happens to me or I do something well, Jackie can't wait to tell everybody the good news that it's because I married her. We, we do this, and this is all good. I'm not Listen, I'm not throwing that. This is all good. This is part of what makes life fun, and I enjoy that. But what about Jesus, those of us who know Christ? Are we that excited about the gospel that's in our lives? Paul's life is bound up in the best news ever. Christ died for him and, and, and reconciled him with God. And remember, he told us to imitate him. So it's not just Paul that is going to be doing this. Listen to some of the things that Paul says in Scripture. Sorry, that he wrote in Scripture. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. And that's Paul's frame of mind as he begins this letter to the church at Rome. A, a church that he's never been to, filled with people that he has never met, and yet he's writing them. And so we spent the last, we spent last week looking at the first six verses where Paul says, Hi, I'm Paul. Let me tell you about Jesus. And now we come to the verses where Paul describes who it is he's writing and why he is writing. And verse 7 is essentially who it is he's writing. He says, To all who are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And then the paragraph we look at today is Paul explaining why it is that he's writing. And, and, and once again, just like last week, he is all bound up in the Gospel. This paragraph, once again, even in the midst of saying, here's why I'm writing, is all bound up in the good news of Jesus Christ. You look at verse 8. Let me just take you through this a little bit verse by verse. You look at verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. You notice that everything that Paul does is powered by and because of Jesus Christ. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith has been proclaimed in all of the world. So he says, first, I'm thankful. How often do you and I prioritize thankfulness in our lives? Well, Paul does, and he is often thankful even for things that you and I wouldn't necessarily be so thankful for. Uh, One instance that I can come up with is is in about three years after he writes this letter, he's going to end up in Rome as, as a prisoner in chains. And yet he's thankful for that because he gets to preach the gospel in Rome, finally. In the household of Caesar, he's thankful for that. But I would also suggest that his thankfulness goes back to an idea that Jesus gave us and that Jesus obviously gave Paul as well. People who recognize just how forgiven they really are by God tend to also be great forgivers and masters of gratitude. Uh, The last several weeks especially if I, as I've started to study Romans, but also as I've just interacted with the world and with people, I've been reminded of the fact that you and I, now this is going to damage our delicate little self-esteem, but you and I are far more sinful than we will ever admit to. But at the same time, God is far more holy and good and powerful than we'll ever give Him credit for. We need to remember that. And Paul, in a couple of weeks, when we start this argument uh, that Paul has, we're going to go into that and he's going to demonstrate for us just how desperately sinful we are while at the same time reminding us just how good and wonderful and holy and saving Jesus is. Those of you who know Christ, have you ever pondered the majesty and the mystery of exactly what it is that Jesus has done for us? Paul gets this. He understands this and he and he sees the evidence of Christ's finished finished work even in the people that he's writing to in Rome he's never been there but he has heard about them he's heard about the church in Rome Rome the, the wealthiest The grandest, the largest, the most powerful city in the world at that time. And there is a church filled with people who, in spite of the persecution and the oppression that it brings them, they love Jesus and they proclaim the gospel and they declare the good news of Christ. They worship the real Lord in Rome where there's another guy who thinks he's the Lord and it can be very dangerous to worship anyone or anything else. That's faith, and that's the faith that Paul is referencing here, and that faith is being proclaimed all around the world, and Paul is thankful for that. Let me just ask you some questions you don't have to answer. Just think about it. Are you and I thankful for each other? Are we thankful for each other? Are we thankful for the rest of redemption? Do we understand that we're just one of six congregations, and we have Five others that we should be desperately thankful for? That they're out there doing the work that we're trying to do? Are we thankful for other gospel-centered people and churches in the valley that, that aren't even necessarily connected to redemption? We should be. And then he says in verses 9 and 10, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to see you. And the implication here is because he hasn't been able to get there, he's been trying for a number of years to get to Rome, and then he wanted to go beyond Rome to Spain to be able to preach the gospel there. He's been trying for a while, and so the implication is, look, I haven't been able to make it, and I'm heading back to Jerusalem again, and so I thought I'd just go ahead and write you and maybe share some things with you. And first he says, He says in this verse, he says, as God is my witness, whom I serve in the gospel. Again, I want to point this out and go a little bit deeper here. Paul constantly reminds us that the power to live and serve and work is by and through and because of the power of Jesus in him. In Jerry Bridges' excellent book, Respectable Sins, Bridges reminds his readers that far too many of us still believe that the Gospel is good for one thing and one thing only, and that is salvation. Well, it is good for that, but it's, but it's good for everything else. All of life is all for Jesus. So it's good for salvation, yes, but then it's also good for sanctification. Sanctification, the idea that, that as we grow in Jesus and learn more about Jesus, that we're going to actually become more and more like Jesus, that He's going to instruct us and lead us to becoming uh, the people that God has called us to be. Sanctification. The gospel is also necessary for mission and for serving and for loving. Uh, Outside of the church, going into the community, going into the world, we need the gospel and the power of the resurrected Christ to be able to do that as well. And the gospel is absolutely necessary, crucial and essential for when we need to endure, when we suffer, when we have trials, when we are challenged by things you don't have the power of the gospel, you're not going to be able to make it through those things. And our prayers should be more like, not God, get me out of this, but God, give me the power of your resurrected Son to be able to endure and go through this. That's the gospel. And that's why we say, we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day because we need the power of the gospel every single day. You don't just turn it on when you're witnessing to somebody else about Jesus and then turn it off. We need the power of the gospel all the time. Something else about these verses. Paul prays for the Romans without ceasing. He says, without ceasing. So Paul is a man of prayer. He is committed to prayer. He understands the power of prayer. Again, what do we pray for? Do we pray for each other or do we just sort of pray for ourselves? Uh, Do we pray for our church as well as other churches? Here you go. Are you praying for people who don't know Jesus right now? Do you have friends do you have people that don't know, family members that don't know Jesus? Are you praying for them? Are you praying that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the good news? Let's keep praying. We've got to be a church of prayer. Oh, and by the way, it's interesting. Paul says that he's trying to get to visit them. In verse 11, he literally says, I long to see you. And you know, Paul does eventually succeed in getting to Rome, right? Boy, this has just been a great lesson for me recently as I've encountered this. So often we pray for things and we ask God for things and we ask God to move. And then we're surprised when He moves and gives us exactly what we pray for, but it comes in a completely different package than we were expecting. And sometimes we don't really like that package. We have an idea. If God answers this prayer, He's going to answer it with this shiny, perfect little package that won't inconvenience me one little bit. God answered Paul's prayer to get to Rome. He went there in chains. He went there as a prisoner. But Paul was thankful for that. In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both, both yours and mine. It's so funny. A lot of people comment on this. It kind of reads like Paul is is saying, I want to come and, you know, I'm Paul, so I'm going to impart, oh, uh, well, but we'll also do some mutual stuff here. Like he caught himself, you know, sort of, sort of getting a little lofty, you know. And people comment on this. The challenge I have with this, though, is that if you just look at that verse, maybe that's what it might communicate but, if, but you have to understand Paul within the context of all of his work, and, and especially within the context of this letter to Rome. You read this whole letter to Rome, you can't make that judgment about Paul, that he's somehow saying, I'm better than you are, because that would discount the power of the gospel in him then. Now we'd start competing with each other again instead of relying on the Lord, and he understands that. Paul's heart in this letter is that he really does want mutuality of encouragement and of building each other up. And we should too. We need to engage in mutuality with each other. And, and I'll tell you, that we have to understand this. There may be times when there are people in the church, and, and, and we relish these times when, when there are people in the church who need more ministry than they are capable of giving. That's fine. That's what the church is here for. And vice versa. There may be times... Seasons in your life where you're giving a lot more ministry than you are receiving. And that should happen as well. But all of it should be done under this attitude of, of mutuality. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That is a good word for us. And then verse 13 is, is yet another reminder that Paul has tried hard to get to, the, to Rome and that he wants to get there for a harvest. And we, we should understand that that harvest is twofold. He wants to have a harvest of evangelism. He wants to have a harvest of people coming to know Jesus Christ. But he, but he also wants to have a harvest of this mutual love and mutual encouragement and mutual building each other up through all of their spiritual gifts. You heard this morning when we were, when we were consecrating Jack that We proclaim that every person in the church has spiritual gifts and they should be using them. And they should be using them in an attitude of of mutuality. Some of the most fulfilling times that you and I can have, that all of us can have, should be in community with each other. And that's not just Sunday morning. And some of those best times, besides eating of course, some of those best times don't necessarily have to be centered around a formal Bible study. Some of those best times is when we simply sit down and share our lives with each other. When we share with each other what God has done in our lives and what God is doing. When we share what's happening in our families and, and what's happening at work. And, and, we, just, and we do life together. And, 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 we, and we take off the mask of, of what uh, 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 Scott Peck calls pseudo-community. And we're willing to engage in that tunnel of chaos to get to genuine community by and in and through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. We need to do that. And I'll tell you, here's coming from a guy, I like Bible study. I, I, I like Bible study. But we don't always have to study the Bible when we get together. We should be with each other in both sweet and sometimes chaotic times. We should be with each other in, in both encouraging and sometimes tense times that's what genuine community is about and paul longs for that with the romans that's what he's saying i want to come and do that with you and then he wraps up this paragraph in verses 14 and 15 really magnificent verses he says i am under obligation both to greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish so i am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now what Paul says here on the surface may not sound that exciting, but I guarantee you this is some really important and really deep stuff. It's pretty amazing. Uh, He says, I'm under obligation. The word obligation there in the Greek literally means that I am a debtor. I have a debt to pay to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. I owe them something. And we might say, well, who are the Greeks and what does he mean by that? Here's what he's doing. It's a literary technique where he's saying, I'm indebted to everyone. It's his way of saying everyone. doesn't matter who you are. I am indebted to everyone. Now, why? Why would he be indebted to everyone, even all these people he doesn't know? If he should be indebted to anyone, it should be to Jesus. You know, the whole thing on the Damascus Road where Jesus saves him and, and the scales fall off his eyes and he's, and, he's, and he's no longer blind spiritually and he knows who God is through Jesus Christ. He should be indebted to Jesus Christ. What's going on here? Well, the thing is is that on that Damascus Road, during that experience, when Paul first met Jesus and came to grips with what Jesus had done for him, the, Jesus, the, the debt that Jesus had paid for him, It gave Paul a radical new perspective and a radical new power by which to live. And so he lives this way not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, not out of a sense of duty, but rather Paul realized that he owed his life to others because Jesus gave his life for him. Jesus gave it all up for him on the cross. And so Paul looks at that and says, I owe that to everybody I come in contact with. And and it's not just me coming in contact with them, but I'm going to go out and share this with them. It's akin to Luke chapter 7, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus talked about how those who are forgiven much also love much. They understand the debt of gratitude, the, the debt of love, the debt of service that they have to other people. And just so you know, just so you know, all of us have been forgiven of much the point that jesus makes in luke 7 isn't he's not making this point he's not saying listen there's that group of people who have been they're just terrible awful sinners and they've been forgiven of a lot and then there's everybody else who well they, they they've been they just they've been forgiven just a smidge they just needed a little bit to get them over the hump just a little bit to get them over the hump he's not saying that he's not He's not giving us two different classes of spiritually fallen people. He's not saying that most of us are good enough to almost be God. That it's kind of a partnership with God. He's not saying that. He's saying everyone has been forgiven of much. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, like I said, we have fallen so much farther short of the glory of God than we'll ever understand. And Jesus is saying... Once you begin to realize that you will begin to take on this attitude, this perspective that you need to be that way with everybody else, that you need to love them, that you need to serve them, that you need to go out and 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 you need to be a great forgiver and you need to be thankful for those things. Paul gets that, and we need to get that too. Uh, we have to get out of the mode in Christianity. I run into this attitude a lot. We have to get out of the mode in Christianity where people are walking around saying, how is this working for me? And get into the mode of genuine biblical faith, which says, how does Christ's work in my life compel me to serve and love others? That's biblical Christianity. And Paul didn't just love and serve others. He was compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. And that's Paul. That's Paul. So you and I are no less obligated to this. We are no less debtors. And let's take an even closer look at who he's talking about here. He's talking about the Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Like I said, here's how you could say this. What he's saying is everyone, everyone. Greeks, this is, he uses the word Greeks. This is Paul's way of, of referencing what Greek-speaking people would admit are the more cultured or educated or erudite people in the world. And the barbarians were everyone else. Everyone else who did not speak Greek and have some form of education. That was the barbarians. See, the Greeks believed that the non-Greek speaking people of whatever ethnicity were uncultured and uneducated because they couldn't understand what they were saying. And so they called them barbarians because the Greek word barbaros literally means those who speak unintelligibly. And so they'd call him barbarians. And here's the thing. When we see that word barbarians, I know for a fact, because I've already had this conversation with a number of people, we think of cavemen with clubs. We think of of the Capital One credit card commercial. Ah, What's in your wallet? That's not who Paul is talking about here when he says barbarians. He's just saying everybody else. And And then Paul says the wise and the foolish. He's further clarifying everyone. Yes, the Greeks would look at themselves and say, well, we're comparatively wise and the barbarians are comparatively foolish. But again, that word foolish is not, is not the harshest form of the word fool. It's, it's a little bit less. It's, it's a word that literally means those who do not understand or think about things. In other words, it's people who are working hard all day long just to survive. They don't have time to sit around and think about the big questions of life. Say, what is reality? What is reality? They're too busy working. So the heart of what Paul is getting at is this. Greek, barbarian, Jew, wise, learned, uneducated, foolish, whatever. What everyone needs is the gospel of Jesus. Paul says these distinctions don't matter. The distinction of Greek or barbarian or wise or foolish, only one distinction matters. Are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus? That's what he's saying. And one reason we know that this is true is because in the very next verse, in verse 15, he's right back to the gospel. He says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you. I want to tell you about Jesus. So there's really a couple of big ideas at work here. A little two-for-one day for you here. Two really big ideas that I want to kind of use to tie a bow on this message. And, And here's the first one. The gospel is for everyone the gospel is for everyone and I know for some of you that's a that sounds like a really bold statement for me to make because uh, you've been taught you've been raised you've you've been in conversations with family friends educators politicians business leaders people of influence and and you've been told and affirmed no that 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 Jesus stuff that's that's just for people who need a crutch you're good you're fine you're okay you're a moral person we know that it deep down in your heart when you peel back all the layers you're really a good person and I know you've heard that that was me 30 years ago thinking that I was just fine without the gospel I wasn't included in that everyone category who needs the gospel but everyone does need the gospel Don't be deceived. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, and so everyone needs Jesus. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would have everlasting life and would never perish. Because God didn't come into the world in the form of Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world. And everyone needs Him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, for whatever reason you're here, somebody brought you, something led you in here, whatever it is. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you, if somebody brought you, ask them about the Gospel. If you didn't come with anybody, there will be people standing up here at the end of this service who will answer your questions. And if they're busy or you don't want to talk to any of them, I'll be standing right at that door out there saying goodbye to people as they leave and head to go get something to eat while I'm still hungry. But I'd be happy to talk to you. We want to talk to you about Jesus if you're here. So talk to someone. Here's the second big idea. I don't know how you can miss this, you, especially if you're here last week. You look at these two, first two uh, paragraphs of this letter, and he sums it up in verse 15. He says, I am eager. Paul is eager to fulfill his calling. These first two paragraphs, really, he gets the formalities out of the way. I'm Paul and you're the Romans. But everything else is all wrapped up in who Paul is in Christ and how he wants to share and proclaim Christ with everybody that he comes in contact with. He wants to do what he is called to do. In verse 15, that word eager tells us a lot. It's the Greek word prothymion. And again, it's a combination of two Greek words, Pro, meaning of first priority, first place, and thymon or thymus, which literally means passion or heat, heat. Literally, you could say, this is what Paul is all hot and bothered about. This is his first passion in life. Preaching and proclaiming the gospel to everyone. And as a result of this prothymon this first passion, we see that Paul, in, in these two first paragraphs, we see that he is three things. And this goes back to this, this conversation I started earlier about the idea of virtue. He is three things that we would consider as part of being a virtuous person. He is selfless. He is selfless. He is focused. And he is committed. And just think about it. How many of us would like to be selfless, focused, and committed, among many other things? But those would be three pretty good qualities to have. Well, here's what we need to remember Paul, us, whoever, you really can't do any of this under your own power. We can do it for a while. We can will ourselves up. We can go to some conferences that that inspire us. We can go to summer camp for a week and come back all fired up like many of us do. Both uh, the, the kids who go and the workers who go. We can get all fired up, but if that power and that energy is bound up in us, it's unsustainable. We can't sustain it. We can buy the tapes. We can buy the CDs. We can do the the downloads. We can do all of that stuff. We can read the books. The only way Paul has this power is as a result of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, living and working in and through Him. It's the same power that any Christian has. Every single one of us who know Christ have that power. In verse 16, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 next week. In verse 16, Paul says, It is the power of God that brings salvation. And it is the power of God that brings us sanctification as well. And you think about this, that this is the life and the power of Jesus, the resurrected Christ in us. Jesus had these qualities as well. Uh, let me just demonstrate for you the life of Christ in regard to these three qualities. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 these words. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, in other words, it's okay to look out for your interests, but no, don't only look at your own interests, but also look out for the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, and then he goes into his sermon illustration, he says, this is a pretty good sermon illustration, it's Jesus. He says, have the same mind that Jesus had, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something that he should try to grasp. But rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was selfless. And therefore, Paul was selfless. You look at the life of Paul and, he's, and, he, and all He wants to do is serve others. He's obligated to others. He is selfless. That's the power of the resurrected Christ in Him. Jesus was also focused. You, you go over to... Mark chapter 8. This is just about a week or ten days before Jesus is crucified. And you look at verses 31 through 38 in Mark chapter 8. Mark writes these words. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, that was a way He referenced Himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, And the scribes, and he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. I love that line. And he said this plainly. He said this boldly and directly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." You are not focused, Peter, on the correct things. You need to be focused on the things of God. That's how you live a focused life. And the only way you can do that is by knowing me, Peter. And then calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to him, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus was focused. That's where we get focus. That's where Paul gets focus. Finally, Jesus was committed and by the way, these are just examples. These aren't the only passages. These are just examples. In Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 44, Luke writes these words And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. This is the night before he was crucified. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying, I know I'm going to the cross, and if there's a plan B, let's talk about it right now. But immediately, immediately, Jesus says this Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is committed. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus was committed thoroughly and utterly. Jesus was selfless, he was focused, and he was committed. Also in Luke, there's a point about a week before his crucifixion, where Luke says that Jesus turned and set His face toward Jerusalem. That one line right there should should just be cause for all of us to stop and consider who Jesus is, what His life was destined for here on earth, and why He did it. He did it to serve us. He did it to give us the ability, the power, the strength that we can access through Him and through Him alone to have those same characteristics, those same qualities. He was so focused on Jerusalem, so focused on His mission. For centuries, the human consensus has been that virtue is brought about by human endeavor. The reality of the Gospel, however, shuts down that nonsense. The fact is, you you and I don't have that kind of power. There's no way we can obtain it from, from, from teaching or or. Or or books. We can't get that kind of resolve from any place but Jesus. This kind of selflessness, focus, and commitment. Paul didn't have it either without Jesus. He was all bound up in himself before Christ. He was so self-centered and so committed to only what he thought was right for him. And then he met Jesus and he understood what real power is. And I know some of you might even be thinking, well, this still sounds kind of like a Christian to-do list. I never once said, you need to be more focused. You need to be more selfless. You need to be more committed. Never said that. I said, you need to know Christ. You need to know Jesus. That's where the true power is. He's the one who on the cross traded His righteousness for our unrighteousness and gave us this ability to access His life and know God through Him. Let me pray and Sean's going to come up and lead us into a time of reflection and response and communion. God, we just pray that, that we would have a harvest as well that Paul talks about, a harvest of evangelism, a harvest of salvation, and that we would have a harvest of mutuality, that we would love each other and we would pray for each other, that we would be in community with each other. And God, that we would be eager also to fulfill our calling that you have given us, and we ask that.